You're listening to audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia, where we believe in preaching the authoritative power of God's Word each and every week. For more content and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org. Go ahead and open a copy of God's Word and meet me in Colossians chapter 1. As we continue in our series, Embracing the Supremacy of Christ, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Our ushers would be happy uh, to bring you one. Embracing the Supremacy of Christ, the title of today's message is The Fruit of the Gospel, an essential to making Christ supreme in your heart, to making him or allowing him to surpass all other things, all other people in status and power and authority in your heart is understanding the gospel. Imagine with me, if you will, you're sitting in a cafe, and a stranger bursts through the door, and you can tell they're excited, and they yell out in the middle of the cafe, good news! And he sits down with somebody, and he starts sharing, and you can tell how excited he is, and, but you can't hear, but you just keep hearing, good news, good news, good news, and it just keeps popping out of his mouth with excitement. And so you begin to wonder, What on earth is he talking about? Well, maybe his uh, favorite sports team was playing the day before, and they had been losing the entire game, but in the very last moment, they pulled out the victory. Or maybe he lives in an economically depressed area, and there are no jobs. And all of a sudden, he just found out that a big company is moving into the area, and he's going to be able to get a job finally and supply for his family. Or maybe his daughter's been dying from an incurable disease, and all of a sudden they found the cure. What makes good news so good is when it overpowers bad news. Amen? That's what makes good news good. And at the epicenter of our text here is this thing called the gospel. The gospel, by definition, literally means good news. News. If we look at it in verses uh, three through eight, we're going to pick up from where we left off from last week. We covered verses one and two as we introduced our new uh, book here, Colossians. It says this, that we thank God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before and the word of truth There it is, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it does also among you since the day that you have heard of it and understand the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, as we saw last week, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul's heart explodes with gratitude that is squarely rooted in this thing called the gospel. And what makes Paul, or what, is, what makes bowing to the supremacy of Christ easy for Paul is his deep-rooted understanding of what the gospel is and all of its implications for us in life. So what we are going to do today, as we talk about this idea of bowing to the preeminence, the supremacy of Christ in our lives, we have to first understand the good news and why it's so good. Amen? Let's begin with prayer. Father, we come to you and we ask God now 
that you would work on our hearts and our lives, God, as we look at this gem, this beautiful treasure of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by asking just this very simple question, what is the gospel? Now, Paul begins here in verse 3 with these words, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins by thanking God, the Father of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he bookends this section in verse 8 by mentioning the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 8. He has made known to us your love in the Spirit, or that is the Holy Spirit. So right here in this section, Paul is making a big deal about the unique character of the God that we worship, that he is the triune God, the three and one, three equal persons, co-equally God, co-existing, co-creating, fully equally God. There is no one like our God. And this is very intentional because Paul is writing into, as you will remember from last week, a polytheistic culture. And a polytheistic culture, like Paul's at Colossae, where he was writing to, Jesus was just one of a thousand different gods. Christ was prominent, but he was not preeminent. And therefore, you were free to choose whatever god that you wanted to worship. Just don't press your god onto me, right? And so Paul is distinguishing here Jesus Christ and why he is supreme from all of the other false gods, demonstrating Christ's superiority to all other gods. Paul is writing into a culture that predominantly worshipped Greek and Roman gods. And if you don't know much about Greek and Roman gods, which I'm sure you do, most of these gods were basically coked up versions of humans, right? They were just humans on steroids and had tons of power. That's what they were. So they were typically capricious. They were cruel. They were predominantly self-serving gods. They were in it for themselves. They loved being God. And if you were a human being, try to imagine what God would be like. This is probably what you and I would come up with. But here in this text, he describes God as a father and a son and a spirit in relationship, because what that would communicate to the Colossians and what that would communicate to our culture as a God of love and concern and empathy, something that the Greeks had never heard of as a quality in their God. And in today's culture, even, the mass majority of Americans who believe in God don't believe in a God that's actively engaged and involved in their lives. They believe in a God that's cold, calloused, indifferent, and set apart. Like he wound up the clock, got creation going, and has been disinterested since the beginning of time. But right here, right away, Paul is telling us that we do not worship a God that can be imagined by human imagination. We do not worship a God that's indifferent, cold, or callous to what is going on in our lives, but we worship a God that's beyond our imagination and intimately involved in the details of our lives. That is a God worthy of supremacy. And so he goes on to show us what this God has done. In verse 5, he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of this, you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you and has indeed come to the whole world and is bearing fruit and growing. You see, the gospel is a story, a complex story. 
You see, from beginning to end, from cover to cover, the entire Bible is the story of the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is kind of like the apex, the culmination. Like when Frodo goes up to Mount Doom and he throws the ring in, if you were to say, well, what's Lord of, Rings, Lord of the Rings about? And you say, well, Frodo throws a ring in the fire. Like, what does that mean? Like, that's the apex. That's what everything in Scripture has been looking toward. But 40 authors, 66 books, 20 different jobs, 10 different countries— Three different languages written over 1,600 years. It's all pointing to this one event fulfilled in Jesus Christ, promised in the Old Testament, looked back with affection and worship in the New Testament, that Jesus Christ is the one true supreme God. But what is the gospel? What is it? Well, if we were to begin in creation, we would find that God began by singing a song. He sang a song with a rhythm. God said, let there be, and it was good. God said, let there be, and it was good. God said, let there be, and it was good. And at the crescendo of this song, we come to the apex of his creation, you and I. That is that God made us in his likeness and in his image, and he made us like him. Nothing else, not the stars, not the animals, not the firmament, not the vegetation, not um, spot at home. Sorry, animal lovers, but your dog is not created in the image of God, and neither, especially not your cat. (laughs) But you are. You are created in the image and likeness of God. And why? Because God is a triune God that has existed in eternity past, and in that trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit, they have enjoyed fellowship and relationship so much so that they didn't feel it necessary to create us because they were somehow lonely, but God in his infinite wisdom wanted creatures to share his glory with, and so he invites us into fellowship, into the midst of that trinity, so that we can know the joy of what that fellowship is like. When God created us, that was an amazing invitation. And he does it by beginning, in the beginning, by singing a song. But if you know anything about jazz music, you know that jazz music's pretty magical when it works, right? It's magical when you have all of these different instruments playing. They don't have a script. They don't have a sheet. They're just kind of all doing their own thing. But when it syncs up, it's magical. And for those of you who don't like jazz music, you're looking at me like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But the reality is when jazz music works, it's beautiful until a false note enters the equation, right? That false note comes in and it just, and you don't have to know anything about music to understand when a false note comes into the equation. And God who is singing his song, God said, let there be, and it was good created all and said it was very good, but then the false note of sin in Genesis chapter three enters the equation and throws the whole thing off. And just like when you listen to music, even if you're not musical, you can discern when a false note enters into the song, you can feel in our culture that sin has affected everything, can't you? When someone gets rocked by the news that they now have to live with cancer and battle. You feel it. 
when a child in the news is abandoned by someone that is supposed to care for them, or if you see the new statistics on abortion and how many millions upon millions of people have never been given the chance to live their lives because somebody found it too convenient to give birth to their life, you feel it in your bones. When you experience injustice in this world, you feel the false note that entered into God's song. So how can we fix this? How do we fix the false note that has entered into the song that has ruined the beauty of what was intended to be? How do we fix it? Well, Bonnie Tyler in her amazing song from the 80s said it right. I need nobody, nothing. I need a hero. Woo! That's what redeemers do. They come in and they write the wrong. They fix the song. They make what was right or wrong right again. They, 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 they cure just like Frodo when he throws the ring into Mount Doom. He is the redeemer. He fixes. He cures. He saves. When Luke Skywalker comes in, he redeems Darth Vader and they overthrow the empire. I'm being super nerdy today. That's what redeemers do as they fix what is broken in the story. And when Jesus Christ, who has predicted for thousands of years before he came, came to die on the cross for our sins, he came to fix the song and make it beautiful again so that you and I who are invited into that fellowship with the triune God could once again enter into God's presence and enjoy that fellowship with him again without sin in the equation. Isn't that beautiful? The gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, that's what makes Jesus superior to every other God. Because the Greek gods, the Roman gods, and even the modern gods that many people worship ultimately are self-serving, but Jesus alone is self-giving. And that's what makes the gospel essential to allowing Jesus Christ to reign supreme on the throne of your hearts because if we don't understand what Jesus Christ has done to literally fix history itself, we will never be willing to give him the throne room of our heart. So when we talk about the gospel, what is the gospel? Well, it's good news overcoming bad news. But point number two, the gospel in the age of skepticism. And Paul mentions in this text, interestingly, two times this word truth. If we pick it up in verse five, it says this, because of the hope that was laid up in heaven, of this you have heard before the word of the truth. Notice what it says there. What kind of truth? Look back at your Bible. What kind of truth? Is it your truth? Is it my truth? Is it somebody else's truth? It's what? The truth. The gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard of it and understanding the grace of God in truth. Now, some of us might be here today. We live in an age of skepticism. Some of us might be here at church kind of checking this whole Christianity thing out. You might say to yourself after you hear about the gospel, wow, you know, the gospel, it sounds kind of cool. I, I, I like that. Like it's, there's a song. I feel that it's been disrupted and Jesus came to fix it. 
But my overriding question is, is it true? Amen? Because it doesn't matter how good the, sound, the song sounds. If it's not true, it doesn't matter. And maybe your inner lawyer is already asking that question. Wait a minute, wait a minute. How do I know that this is true? Or for some of you who believe it's true, how do I convince skeptical loved ones in my life that this is true? Because I think this is, a, is this important? We live in a culture where truth is dying a slow death in front of us. In 2016, the Oxford Dictionary included as a definition the term post-truth, that we live in a post-truth culture. Kellyanne Conway, in an interview in 2016 after President Trump was elected, came up with this term, alternative facts. Time Magazine in 2017 ran an article called, Is Truth Dead? It's everywhere. The truth is dying a slow death right in front of our eyes. And everybody has been asking, well, is truth dead? I think one person said it right. No, but who can find it? That's the overriding question. I think most people think truth is out there. I just have no idea how to find it. So we live in a culture and a time in history where we've had, we have more information at our fingertips than we've ever had before. And yet we find the answer to the question of what is truth more elusive than ever. Are we together on that? And it matters. Does truth matter? Kate Spade, the fashion designer a couple years ago, I believe, who took her life. It was interesting. I was at Best Buy the other day looking for something, and I saw her name right there on a phone cover. And her name is everywhere. And she took her life a couple of years ago, and she left a note for her 11-year-old daughter at the time. And she wrote on that note, sweetheart, you need to understand I love you. And this has nothing to do with you. But you do need to ask your daddy. Do you think the truth is going to matter to her? What she gets from her dad? Will the truth matter? I was on a plane a couple years ago, and uh, I sat down next to a lady who started up a conversation with me, and, and she wanted to talk religion. And it's rare that I find a person who actually wants to talk religion on uh, the airplane. I usually have to find these really creative ways to talk about Jesus with people on the airplane, but she was like all for it. But she was also into this like Middle East um, the only way I know how to describe this is she was more into matrix theology than anybody I'd ever met in my life. She was all like, man, the physical world isn't real. You got to free your mind. Nothing's real. Just, you know, use your mind, free your spirit. That's all it is. And so I remember I, I held up a pen in front of her. It was a blue pen. And I asked her, so what color is this pen? Is it blue? Because it looks blue to me. And she's like, no, man, you got to free your mind. The pen's not blue. It's not even there. Can't you see it? And I'm like, so I said, I looked at her. I said, if I held a sword in my hand, is the sword real? She's like, no, you got to free your mind. You're so entrapped by the physical world, man. You got to free your mind. So I asked her the next logical question. If I swing the sword at your head, are you going to duck? 
Does truth matter? Now, Paul makes a bold claim here in the text. The word of the truth, capital T. And we understand that that is a massively bold claim for Paul to make in his day and especially in our day because we live in a culture where truth shifts like a kaleidoscope. I mean, can, I, can you agree with me? We live in a culture where the only absolute truth is that there is no absolute truth, right? And further, for anybody to make an absolute truth claim is really just grabbing for power. So a lot of people would interpret Paul as, well, if he's making an absolute truth claim, he just wants power. He just wants to be able to control people. That is the culture of our day. And I found this story incredibly helpful because, can, can you go with me on this for just a minute? Is this helpful, what we're talking about in truth? Because I think what's important for us is to understand how the culture thinks, how the people that you work with think about truth so that you know how to explain it to them because they probably don't even know. And if you can explain it to them and then dismantle their thinking so that you can slip in the gospel, would that be helpful? There was a story that I heard many years ago about an elephant and six blind men. And it perfectly illustrated how our culture tends to think about religion, claims of absolute truth. It's a story of an elephant, and six blind men walk up to the elephant. Each blind man walks up to the elephant, and they can't see, so they start feeling the elephant. And one man feels the side of the elephant, and he says it feels like a wall. Another man walks up to the leg, he feels the leg, and he says, I think it's a tree trunk. Another man feels the tail, he says, I think it's a rope. Another man feels the trunk, and it's a snake. Uh, the, The tusk, and it's a spear. The ear, and it's a fan. And every man, though blind, is trying to describe the same thing. All the while, the king is standing behind all of the blind men, watching them try to explain in their limited capacity the same thing. To which he described, or he explained, none of these men have the right to claim absolute truth because they're blind. That is what our culture says about all claims of truth is that nobody has the right to claim absolute truth because we're all blind and ultimately trying to describe the same thing, God. Does that make sense? Here's the problem with that. In saying that nobody can make an absolute claim is an absolute claim in and of itself. If you're going to say you can't make an absolute claim, then you can't make this one. Are you with me? Problem number two What if the elephant speaks? What if the elephant speaks and tells you what it is and who it is and why it's there? What if God speaks into our blindness, gives us light, and shows us exactly who he is? The analogy assumes that God would never do that. But we have a God who's been doing it for thousands and thousands of years and most fully did it when he sent his son Jesus who said, if you want to see the Father, do what? Look at me. Look at what it says in chapter 1, verse 15. Paul writes this. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the image, the icon, the exact imprint of the invisible God. If you don't know who God is and you want to know who he is, you have to look to Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible is not just a story of good news. It's also a record of God's self-revelation. But it begs a different question. Go, choke, go. Excuse me. It begs a different question then, and probably a harder question, is we still might say, that sounds super compelling, and I'm still getting choked up. (coughs) Excuse me. It sounds super compelling, but it's all coming out of here, right? So what's the next logical question? How can I trust this? If this is, look back at what it says in verse 5. Because the hope laid up for you in heaven of this you have heard before and the word of the truth. The word of the truth is the Bible. It's God's self-revelation of who he is. And that's why Jesus, or God says in 1 Timothy, that all scripture is God-breathed. It's literally the words of God. Everything that God wants us to know about who he is, is found right here. But the question is, how do we know if we can trust it? Have you ever been asked that question by someone that you've tried to witness to? Here are a couple of thoughts on why I trust the reliability of the scriptures. And it all comes down to the witnesses. How do we know something in history has happened? How do we know that George Washington crossed the Delaware? How do we know that the Cubs finally won the World Series? How do we know? Because we had what? We had witnesses. And what is unique about Christianity itself is the girth, the chorus, the, thank you, brother. Thank you so much for more water. Love you. What is unique to Christianity, and especially the Gospels, is the amount of witnesses. It is completely unique to Christianity. If you look into Islam, the only true witness of Islam is Muhammad. He went into a cave, got all of these revelations from God. He came out, he wrote it all down. He is the only witness to all of it. If you look into Buddhism, it's just a philosophy. If you look at Hinduism, there's recorded accounts, but there's no witnesses. If you look into Scientology, you got Tom Cruise. (laughs) But here's the thing about the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and even John, though it's written later, is that they are all written within the lifetime of the actual witnesses. The Gospels are not written hundreds of years later. They're written 20 to 30 years later. And they're also written in the geographic location of the witnesses. Which means what? You can't just make this stuff up, right? If it, I, I've been graduated from high school for about 20 two years now. And if someone were to say and come along and say, hey man, this amazing thing happened, like I levitated in the middle of class 18 or 20, yeah, 22 years ago. I'm losing track of time. I hit 40, it happens. And I levitated in the middle of class and this thing happened. I shone brightly and blah, 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 blah. And I can just say like, no, that didn't happen. I was there. I can call your bluff. 
And that's exactly why this is important about the witnesses because hundreds of people saw the resurrected Christ. Not just 12, hundreds, thousands of people saw Jesus turn water into, or, or, I'm sorry, uh, a loaf of bread and fish to feed not just 5,000, but then women and children. Thousands of people witnessed this. And here's the thing. If you go to the book of Mark, here's what Mark does. And it's so fascinating. I never noticed this until I was listening to Tim Keller talk about this. But he says, he notices, he said, Jesus needed help carrying the cross uh, out to Golgotha. And the man who did it was Simon of Cyrene. Remember? Simon of Cyrene. And then he says this, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, he doesn't just give one credible witness. He gives his kids. Why does he do that? It's a footnote. It's a proof. It's a receipt to prove to you, if you don't believe this, go and find these guys. Go find Alexander. Go find Rufus. Go find uh, uh, Simon of Cyrene. If Simon of Cyrene's not alive anymore, you can talk to their kids. But every generation... Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see? The gospel would have never gained traction if it had been based on a lie. Never. Because so many different messiahs during Jesus' day tried to come and improve. Well, yeah, I'm the messiah. I'm the one. I'm the guy. But the second it was found out to be a lie, it was squashed and gone forever. That's why I believe this. And some of us might, uh, were, well, some might object and say, well, I, maybe the original writings were credible, but this is like whispered down the lane. Like it's been changed so many times and retranslated and reinterpreted. Have you ever heard that? Like it's been changed. Dan Brown in his, in his book, The Da Vinci Code, made that claim that it's been changed so much. It's just baloney. Anybody who says that the Bible has been changed over generations and generations just doesn't, has not done their homework. Here's a couple of proofs. Caesar, Plato, Aristotle, and Homer, here's how many manuscripts of all the books that they have written. Now, we never sit around questioning, well, I'm not really sure that this happened with Homer or Plato or blah, 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 blah. We don't sit around questioning that. But we sit around questioning the Bible, yet we have 25,000 manuscripts, all that agree that the Bible says what it says it says today. Does that make sense? But here's another one. They say, well, but that doesn't go back far enough. Well, then we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which went back before the days of Christ, a thousand years earlier than any Old Testament record that we had. And the assumption was, well, as soon as we open up the Dead Sea Scrolls, we're going to discover that the Bible has been changed over thousands of years. And you can go, and you can check it out at the museum, and you will discover nothing's changed. That's why I trust my Bible. And that's why I think you can trust your Bible. And as we live in an age of skepticism, we need to know how to lovingly assert the truth, the truth claims of the Bible. Because we live in a culture where you, you assert a truth claim, you're going to get in trouble unless you can back it up. And Christians, we have to know how to defend our faith in a skeptical culture. Amen? Is this helpful? And so here's what I would commend to you. You're like, wow, man, I've never heard some of this stuff before. Read on it. Study it. Because the skeptical world wants to know, is the Bible reliable? I think and I believe that the Bible will stand up to the toughest scrutiny. 
we can stand on the word of truth. But then a final question, what about the efficacy, the fruit of the gospel? Does it work? I think a lot of us are just super practical people. Don't waste my time proving it to me with, you know, history and blah, 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 blah. I just want to know if it works. Is it reliable? Will it do anything? Because I don't want to waste my time. And here's the good news. We can test the validity of the scriptures, of the gospel, based on these two questions. Is it universally applicable? And number two, what does it produce? You see, there's a universality to truth, isn't there? Capital T, truth. If it's true for you, it has to be true for me. If it doesn't work for you, then it's not going to work for me. You see, if I cut myself, or if you cut yourself, what's going to happen? You're going to bleed. It's a universal truth. If you put your arm over a flame, you're going to get burned, right? If an apple tree doesn't produce apples, it's not a, it's not an apple tree. There's some universal principles that have to reign over everything and be universally true. And so the question becomes, does the gospel apply universally to everyone? Look at what it says in verse 6, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it, does also, as it also does among you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Now, the reason why this is important, again, is because Paul is writing to a culture that was being infiltrated by what was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism means to know. And there was an elite group of people, kind of like Scientology today, who were in the know. And if you were special, and if you were initiated, then you were in the know, and you had special access to understanding God. And the gospel comes along, and the gospel says, I don't care who you are, where you've been, what you've done, or what's been done to you. I want into your heart, and I want to reign in your life, and I want to love you and forgive you and make you right with God. The gospel doesn't care if you're part of the elite. It doesn't care if you're rich or poor, young or old, black or white, Democrat, Republican. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done. The gospel just wants your heart. That's what the gospel wants, and that's why the gospel is flourishing in places it has no right to exist. Have you ever thought about that? That the gospel is flourishing in parts of the world in which it has no right to exist. It is flourishing in places where people are spilling their blood for the sake of the gospel. To stand for Jesus and say, yes, I believe. The gospel is flourishing. In China, where the government is actively trying to suppress Christianity, the church is flourishing. The harder we try to suppress it, the more it flourishes. And that proves that this thing isn't made up. It's supernatural. But here's the second thing. What does it produce in people's lives? And notice what it says in verse 6 which has come to you as indeed the whole world and is bearing fruit and growing. What is this fruit that Paul speaks of? Is the gospel just a splash in the pan? You know, someone gives a a Jesus sugar rush, kind of a temporary high, and then they leave Christianity never to come back to it again? Or does it have staying power? 
And remember, in the context of the Colossians, the Colossians were being pressed from every side to abandon their faith. And maybe you are too. Maybe you're being pressed by your family or your coworkers, your business or your culture or whatever it is to abandon your faith. And what Paul is saying here in the text is that those have been truly transformed by the gospel under pressure will flourish and grow. And here's how it will work. They will grow, first of all, in verse 3. We thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ. Your faith in Jesus Christ will not diminish. It'll grow. Your confidence in who Jesus is and what he's done and the promises that are yet to be fulfilled, when you are under the pressure of your culture to abandon your faith, your faith will actually grow. Why? Because faith is only as strong as the object in which it is placed. And when you place it in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's nothing stronger than that. It will grow. Look at what else it says. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love that you have for all of the saints. Love is more than a feeling. Who is it that said that? Ario Speedwagon? Is that right? Ario Speedwagon, more than a feeling? But it is. You look at throughout all of the scriptures and you see how many times Paul commands us, Jesus commands us to love. If love is just a feeling, if it's just an emotion, how can you command it to do anything? You see, love that God is talking about is a gift given to us by the Holy Spirit. Look at what it says in verse 8. And he has made us to know, known to us your love in the Spirit. Or to make it more clear, in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Paul says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Which means that there is a supernatural force that God gives you inside of you, this thing called love, that does not feel satisfied until it bursts out of you and attaches onto someone else for their betterment and their good. That's what biblical love is all about. And that's why God can command us to love, and that's why our love can grow in the midst of pressure and persecution because it doesn't come from our circumstances or our feelings. It comes from God. You got a few minutes? You're like, well, how long are you going to go? <laughs> I, uh, this last week, we, we have four amazing little girls, Addie, Emmy, Carrie, and Izzy. And uh, one of our children is an amazing opportunity uh, for personal growth and development as a believer. <laughs> she is our opportunity child. Parents, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> she is my opportunity for sanctification. And after... Two particularly frustrating days, and, and where's Mark? You were there for one of them. I was kind of at my wit's end, wasn't I? A little bit. And I went home and I said, honey, talking to my wife, my love bucket, my love bucket for my daughter right now is completely empty. Parents, have you ever been there? Amen. <laughs> 
It's just a little too loud, but no, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm totally with you. Amen. Amen. Because my, bu- my love bucket was just gone. I was, I was just kind of at my wit's end. I'm like, when, I, when my love bucket grows empty, I, I want to use anger to control the situation. That's just kind of like what I was raised with and where my personality tends to go. And I knew that 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 would be damaging to my child. And I've done that in the past and I've repented of it and I don't want to do it again. I don't want to damage my daughter with the anger that damaged me. And so I got up early. I was at, up at like 4 a.m. and just crying out to God, God, I, I need you to fill my heart with your love that is supernatural beyond wisdom and understanding, beyond my emotions, beyond what I can get out of her. Because right now I'm not getting anything out of her except anger and frustration. And I sat down at 6 a.m. with my wife and I'm praying with my wife and we're crying and we're sitting at the table and we're just like, God, you need to fill our hearts with God's, with your love. And lo and behold, what happens? God answers. And yet again, another difficult three-day stretch, and we can love our daughter without anger or outbursts or control or, or domination. We're able to love our daughter gently and, 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 and caringly and understanding. Am I tracking? That can't come from anywhere other than God. And that's the gospel. That's the proof. But it goes way beyond that because we live in a church or we don't always get along. Say, so, well, I can't stand that person not over here, <laughs> somewhere over there. God, fill my heart with love. It's the proof of the gospel. And that's why the church is so different from every other social gathering. Because we are able to love not just our enemies, but those that just really annoy us. And I'm not sure which is harder sometimes. And then finally, the last thing that we see as a proof is just the hope, verse 5, because of the hope that's laid up for us in heaven. We're able to get through this temporary sliver of life because this that is coming, this peace that is called life, this 72-year window of time that we have, this can be pretty stinking difficult and frustrating and hard But when we know that we have this thing laid up in heaven for us for all of eternity, it makes this pretty bearable. That's how we get through it, is our hope and what is to come. And at the end of the day, what is the gospel? It's this amazing story of Jesus Christ redeeming the rhythm of our relationship with God. We can proclaim it into a, in a skeptical culture because we believe that the documents that prove the resurrection of Jesus are reliable and we can depend on them. But more importantly than that, we can look into our very lives and know that if Jesus Christ is transforming us by strengthening our faith, growing our love, and maintaining our hope in a hopeless world, that's how we prove to a skeptical world that Jesus and the gospel is actually real. So my question to you is this. If you are the skeptic today, search the scriptures and do it honestly. It is a robust text and it can stand under your scrutiny. But for the believer, 
pray for boldness to share the love of Jesus Christ. Because when we get to the end of time, the only thing that you won't be able to do in heaven for the rest of eternity is share your faith with unbelievers. Let's do it now. And let's do it boldly. Father, we love you. Father, help us to be bold for the sake of the gospel. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. It shows us why Jesus is worthy of preeminence in our life. So Father, I pray God for the person today who is struggling. Look to Jesus. Who is wrestling. Look to Jesus. Father, for a person who is asking questions and skeptical, that they would go to your word. Father, that you would do what only you can do when a person meets with you in your word through the power of your spirit. You would transform their heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia. For more audio, content, and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org.